I mean, what's that football focus doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Ready to get into it? Yeah, yeah. All right. We're going team by team. I would be very careful if I had slings. Am I going to get sued? We got legal on this? I like football, like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL Podcast. Steve Pelizzolo back along with Sam Monson. And we're live here on a Monday morning. And it is Mock Draft Monday. That's what we do. The people loved Mock Draft Monday last week. Hopefully they'll love it again. Hmm. This time breaking down Daniel Jeremiah's Mock Draft. DJ. Yeah. Because all we're looking for here, Sam, is you know discussion points. We just want to talk. What do you and I want to do? Just talk for two hours. Uh-huh. About the draft. Turns out there's a relatively uh, low amount of these, you know, the big wigs, the Mel Kuypers, Daniel Jeremiah, Todd McShays of the world. They've been kind of slow getting the stuff out post-free agency, you know? Maybe it's today. Maybe today's the day they drop. But Yeah, that's I supposed to be the big post-free agency mock is, is the big thing. Yeah, I was expecting to see a whole flurry of mock drafts from each one of these guys, you know, post-free agent moves. And there was... This was the most current one I could find, which was, what, five, six days ago? March 21st. This was I mean, posted. that's a perfect time to drop the post-free agency mock five days ago. That was fine. I'm just saying, like, maybe you could. I, neither Kuiper nor McShay had one. Yeah, I don't understand that. Post-free agency. Don't yeah. understand that. They got to, they gotta, you know, Maybe Monday is when it drops. Maybe it's this morning. Maybe it'll happen live during the podcast. So let's get into it. Yeah, maybe they will. We'll just compare. We'll do uh, mock, you know, dueling mocks there. So we'll be doing mock drafts or some level of them every single Monday, talking about uh, what's going to happen at the top of the draft in particular. We'll do some more interactive type of stuff, or maybe we're going to do it on the fly. We'll do a fan one like we did last year. That was that was flawless last oh. year, if you remember. Mm. We were doing uh, polls in the chat and things like that. So that was great. We'll do that at some point before the draft. Um, we've got some great draft conversations coming up might have Jim Nagy and hopefully Dane Brugler I think both of those guys are locked in and we have feelers out with Chris Sims Hmm. feelers out there we've had a a little back and forth with Chris Sims people People. namely Chris oh yeah his own people yeah him yeah yeah I mean we just you leapfrog his people you go right to Chris and uh, he's interested we're just trying to figure out a time he's live on the radio right now we're you know he's live every morning busy man yeah so So we'll figure that out. We'll get Chris Sims on here to get his, uh, nice. his QB takes, which transitions nicely because I think how high is he on Hendon Hooker? Does he have Hooker third in his uh, QB rankings? Certainly in his top five ahead of one of the ahead of Levis, right? So not fourth, to give, maybe. So yeah. four. So not to give it all away, but Daniel Jeremiah has some uh, some things in his mock draft that might uh, that might back that up that uh, the league might like Hendon Hooker and maybe sour on Will Levis just a little bit. So let's get into it. Um, do you want to recap quick news from, from last week, first of all? Bobby Wagner re-signs with the Seattle Seahawks. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Well, Not draft-related. right. He does have Hendon Hooker third, so ahead of two. He's got Hendon Hooker third, who ends up in Daniel Jeremiah's round one mock. It's, we haven't it's seen that. It's Dorian Thompson-Robinson he has ahead of Will Levis. Actually, technically, he hasn't tied with Will Levis. They're equal. I can't wait to ask Chris about I can't wait to ask Chris about his, uh, his takes there. Um, so last week... Bryce Young, I'm sorry, the, the Carolina Panthers had a lot of dinners. So Bobby Wagner re-signed with the Seahawks, signed with the Seahawks, news. 
And the Carolina Panthers ate a lot of steaks, I like to say. Did they? Yeah. They went to dinner with all the top QB prospects. Oh, I see. They went to dinner with C.J. Stroud I mean, and Bryce Young and had, Will Levis. Zay Flowers had two in one day. Um, yeah, because he's trying to put weight on. So teams are bulking him up with back-to-back dinner meetings. Or his agent's setting this up. Like, hey, Zay, I know you're trying to put on mu- muscle. Back-to-back dinners. Yeah. You're welcome. I mean, that's the best part of the draft process. Steak dinners. Yes. The absolute best part. You're working so hard. You're a little stressed out. Where am I going to get drafted? Where am I going to move to? I, what, what, what's my future look like? But you get a lot of free, free steaks. So yeah. that's, that's great. It's that's good true. times. It's like us at the Combine. Anyway, let's go. Um, a lot of people are looking at the Carolina Panthers. I'm, I'm going to get to something here. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are looking at Josh McCown and, and the crew when they were at the Ohio State Pro Day. Yeah. High-fiving, daps, hugs, the whole thing with, uh, with C.J. Stroud thinking this is it. Mm-hmm. It's CJ. But they did this with everybody, right? They went to dinner with Bryce Young. They did it with yeah. Will Levis. Was there a little twinkle in their eye for CJ Stroud? I don't think they did that to everybody. Like, you know, they well, showed No, was up. it reported as so did they show it? This is the media can create a picture here if they only show hugs and kisses for CJ no, Stroud no. but not for Bryce Young and Will Levis. They showed them all they showed them at each individual pro day and they showed them interacting with the various quarterbacks. It was definitely more effusive for like Josh McCown was ready to adopt CJ Stroud at the end of that pro day. They were not the same with other pro days. They were, you know, nice. It's not like they shunned the pro day, the quarterbacks at the other pro day and were like, Hey, that was yeah, great workout. See ya. Or we won't, we won't call you, you know? They, they were nice, but it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like that. So, so that all brings me to, to Daniel, Daniel Jeremiah's mock draft and other mock drafts that I've seen that still have Bryce Young at number one going to the Carolina Panthers. That's what Daniel had as of five days ago. Maybe things have changed since the, uh, since the pro day, since the twinkle in their eye. Right. Maybe things have changed. But Daniel Jeremiah has Bryce Young going number one and then C.J. Stroud going number two. And also, when you read his logic, this, like he, he says that he believes that Bryce Young is the best of the bunch and essentially will therefore emerge as their target. Like he's, he's working on the basis that this is the guy I think is the best quarterback, therefore the Panthers will eventually settle on the yeah. same determination. It, and when you talk about mock drafting, a lot of people take that, take that approach, which is if I don't have actual information, I'm going to make some kind of assumption that they'll evaluate the quarterbacks in a similar way that I do. And at the end of the day, they'll come to the conclusion that Bryce Young's the best and I'm going to predict him to be the top guy um, until new information arises. And it's like, actually, okay, we, we feel pretty strong that C.J. Stroud's their guy. I'm going to do that for my mock draft. Because most mock drafts, as Daniel's doing here, are predictive, right? You're trying to get into the head of each organization and predict what they're going to do. Yeah. But uh, he's got Bryce Young and then C.J. Stroud. The other interesting thing that came up on NFL Network, I think it was last week, Thomas Davis, who's an analyst there, obviously well-connected with the Carolina Panthers from many years in Carolina, said, quote, some people upstairs, end quote, something like that. Probably shouldn't have quoted, as I'm paraphrasing. Hmm. Some people upstairs in the building in Carolina really love Anthony Richardson, really love his tools and everything. So Thomas Davis, using his, uh, his sources to say Anthony Richardson could be in the mix here, which means... As we sit here on March 27th, do we actually know who the top quarterback is going to be for the Carolina Panthers? I don't know. I mean, I do think, based off the 
based off the video of those guys and CJ Stroud at his pro day, I think there's a pretty good chance that it is CJ Stroud. That and the fact that as soon as they traded up to that number one pick, the odds jumped massively in that direction. Like they took it off the board. It went from Bryce Young being the favorite to CJ Stroud being the favorite. So you put all those pieces together, I would say that's the most likely outcome right now. I think if it's not going to be CJ Stroud for some reason, the guy that I think you can construct a very good argument for, which is if you are making that kind of aggressive move, if you're trading up, if you're swinging for the fences, the swinging for the fences move is the Anthony Richardson one. Like I, I understand the argument that Bryce Young is the best quarterback prospect, therefore the best, like the biggest swing you can make. But I still think that if a team is deciding we're really going for a home run here, Richardson is the potential home run based off literally unprecedented, you know, workout numbers, athleticism, size, all that combination. I'm still torn if that's really the case. I think I buy it, but I'm torn if that's really the case. If if maximum tools equals maximum upside. I don't know. Obviously in recent NFL history, it has it has pretty much been the case, but if if you were going to make an argument for C.J. Stroud, you would say, okay, if he's going to become a star, it's going to look like Joe Burrow's stardom, right? If you're going to make a case for Anthony Richardson's stardom, you're going to say it's going to look like Josh Allen's, right? Or depending on how you feel about Justin Fields, what Justin Fields could become maybe this year, right? Where you mesh the running with passing potential. So do maximum tools actually mean maximum upside? You can make the case that C.J. Stroud, with his accuracy – and what he's capable of doing throwing the football, that Stroud could become the next Joe Burrow. I, I just don't know. I mean, I agree that the upside is probably in Anthony Richardson. It's just interesting that we only think of it through the lens of tools. Well, to me, the argument is more Bryce Young. I mean, I, we've been through this before, the, the C.J. Stroud stuff. But the Bryce Young one is the easier argument to make because he's been better at almost everything across the board. When you look at your uh, the PFF IQ, stable or unstable metrics, you know, the, the kind of key – Uh, data points across the board he is above the 75th percentile in everything literally every data point whether it's stable or unstable like he is incredible at every single thing so the only question with Bryce Young to me is um, even if the size and height thing doesn't become like let's say the worst case scenario doesn't happen like he doesn't get ragdolled to the floor turned into a wreck and just broken out of the league does his size like is there a cap on how good he can be at that size or are you like no like this is the guy he's going to be because if you think he's this good then theoretically he has the highest ceiling right because he's been the best player but even I think that the size thing is so unprecedented or so rare and extreme that it makes you wonder that okay even if it doesn't stop him being good does it stop him being great like can you be a great quarterback in today's NFL at 5'10", 185. I think if you, I mean, I think Kyler Murray is is in that top 8 to 10 quarterback conversation, but I don't know if he can be great if he's not better in the middle of the field. Exactly. And if, if Bryce Young, who hasn't necessarily shown those limitations in college as much, if he doesn't, if, if there are holes to his game, then there's holes to his game. By the he, way, he's, he only ends up being good. I, I will be using 185 as his weight 
from everyone's arguing. Everyone's saying he's 204. He's not 204. He's a real 204. He just is not 204. Everyone's saying he's a real 204. Okay, but they're wrong and lying. Vernon Hargraves also checked in at 204 at the combine. A gallon of water weighs eight pounds. So the very minimum, or the very maximum, rather, I'm willing to believe that he weighed before that combine was 196. Because that's eight pounds less than the 204 you he weighed. You think all he drank at. was a gallon? He could have drank two. That's what I'm saying. So the, the absolute maximum I'm willing to accept is 196. There is not a chance in hell that that guy weighs over 200 pounds. You only need to put him on a picture standing next to any normal human being. C.J. Stroud was, what, 213, something like that? He looked like C.J. Stroud's younger brother. Kyler Murray weighed in at 207, I think, at the Combine, which may be inflated as well. Kyler Murray is like twice the dude's width. Yeah, when you say looks, you stack them next to each yeah. other, he is much heavier than him. So the 204 thing is bullshit. I'm not buying that for a second. And what's more, I don't think any NFL team buys that for a second either. They know what he weighed at Alabama. They know his playing weight, and it was not anywhere near 200 pounds. Uh, one more thing that came out, because you always get the, uh, the quotes from uh, agents that come through the media. Uh, scouts like that Bryce Young. Scouts like that. Uh, Bryce Young stands tall when he throws and has an over-the-top delivery. So that was basically to offset his height. And I, Drew but Brees I, was always great at that. So I think the stand tall in the pocket part matters. The over-the-top delivery, I don't think, matters because the issue with the height is not batted passes, right? A lot of times the first thing people think of is, oh, every, every pass is going to get batted. Like obviously there's a tipping point. If you were 5'5", five, five, like you, in the pocket – you might be hitting O-lineman in the helmet every single time. There is a tipping point. But for a quarterback like Bryce Young, it's not that every pass is going to get batted. Batted passes happen with tall quarterbacks too. Mm -hmm. They're a proxy of where you're throwing the ball. Low trajectory, usually over the middle of the field. I, That's what leads to batted passes. Yes. I am taller than Bryce Young. Well, well good. I'm now, proud. I'm so is everybody else, but... I am taller than Bryce Young. I'm proud of you, man. I'm not five foot five. I'm very proud of you. But but Drew Brees always struck me like now again when you're comparing like Drew Brees was what six foot, yeah, flat even whatever. So we're talking like Drew Brees is two inches taller than Bryce Young. So immediately we're not quite talking about the same size people. Um, but Drew Brees was always you watch him in the pocket. Not only was he like bolt upright, but every pass was like. You know, north to yeah. set 12 to 6, like right over the top. That dude squeezed every last millimeter out of being six foot tall in a way a lot of other short, shorter quarterbacks don't. Yeah, and, and, and I again, say, though, I, I think the most important part of that is the part of the standing tall is the vision aspect of yeah, it. Yeah, but it was it was always obvious watching Drew Brees. I got to say, I, that didn't necessarily jump out when you were watching Bryce Young tape. Like, I didn't, I didn't get the same. You watch Drew Brees, it takes you five seconds. Yeah. Go, oh, that dude is like bolt upright the whole time whereas Bryce Young doesn't no I'm I never took got that impression what I think Bryce Young does is the 1980s I mean uh, NFL up until the 1980s and 90s straight drop back he does the old school backpedal quite a bit and I don't know if that's because of his height or vision or whatever it is but Bryce Young every single time he dropped back I'm like is he throwing left because he's oriented to to throw left right he's dropping straight back um if I have a concern it's that he can't Flip back to the right. Can he throw to his right? Get his get his shoulders. Because I think Bryce Young sometimes is a little too slow to set up. And he might have to speed that up a little bit. I love a lot of what Bryce Young's, you know, what he brings to the table. But that part's interesting to me. He's got the old school drop back. So um, anyway, in this Daniel Jeremiah mock draft, we're breaking it down. NFL.com, 
Daniel Jeremiah's third mock draft. Bryce Young's going number one to the Carolina Panthers. C.J. Stroud's going number two to the Houston Texans. 22 turnover-worthy plays across two years of starting for Bryce Young. That's a really impressive figure. 2% in each of the last two seasons. So one of the biggest things is for a guy who plays outside of structure a reasonable amount, who is going to run around, who is going to ad-lib, to still only have 2% turnover-worthy plays is pretty crazy. If, if Young does go one to Carolina, mm-hmm. last week when we did our mock draft, we said, hey, let's, let's go Anthony Richardson with Houston. I think realistically, if I was trying to predict the draft, though, I could see the Texans taking Stroud. You know, getting the, yeah. getting the conventional run-the-offense passer for Bobby Slowick and the Kyle Shanahan you know, uh, derivative offense. Yeah. Uh, last season, Stroud's turnover, the play rate, 3.6%. And for his two years starting, three. So a full percentage, like 150% as, as uh, turnover prone. Look at you. So that would, as I've mentioned, I know people think we're like CJ Stroud haters, but I guess, you know, when you, when you talk a lot, people think you're everything because um, you say nice things, you say negative things. But my, my concern with Stroud is that the, the floor might be bad. Like, the floor could be low for C.J. Stroud. My concerns are when he does outside of the Georgia game. Yes. When he outs- – and again, how do you weigh the Georgia game? Is It's the last thing we saw. Did he just get better? Had an extra couple weeks, he just got better. He turned the corner. Everything's better. Or do you look at the entire body of work? If the entire body of, the work, car- body of work carries to the NFL, C.J. Stroud off-platform with a little bit of pressure in his face, when he has to reset his feet, when he throws um, – without his feet set over the middle of the field and everything, some of the decisions are poor. I mean, he looks like a guy that could be turnover prone at the next level based off of some of the things we saw at Ohio State. One thing that's interesting with him, his athleticism barely ever gets talked about, and he doesn't use it a lot, but might need to at the next level. So one thing that's awkward is that Ohio State offense that I don't think necessarily helps those quarterbacks transition to the NFL in its current state. So forget, you know, Troy Smith back in the day. I'm talking like now, Justin Fields and C.J. Stroud, essentially. I don't think that that offense does them any favors in terms of transitioning to an NFL offense and then having to work through everything that they've got to work through pre- and post-snap and be a high-level passer. Now, Fields has got the added complicating factor of the fact that he had nobody to throw to and a pretty bad offensive line working for him as well. But if C.J. Stroud has relative struggles with that transition in a similar way that Justin Fields has. If he isn't able to offset that the same way Fields has been with running, like if he's not able to bring that to the table and sort of prop up the relative deficiencies passing the ball, that could make for a pretty bumpy transition. But there are plays out there where he looks like he has way more athleticism than he actually uses. Like if he's just not tapped into that, like we didn't, we didn't think Justin Fields was going to be an all-world running threat, even though he was a better athlete than uh, C.J. Stroud is. But like that whole area, I think, is a really important part of determining how good Stroud is going to be early in particular. I think we've run into that a little bit in the, at, at the NFL level, right? Would you agree you've been surprised by the athleticism of Justin Fields? Hugely by Fields. Jo- Josh Allen. And Daniel Jones. Uh, yeah, all of them. Just just that it, 
not that it showed up temporarily, but it's sh- that it showed up as often, or that they they run the ball as often as they do and as effectively as they well, have. Well, the the Allen thing, is, I think, falls into the same bucket as Cam Newton, which is why I think it's a really interesting thing and not to be underestimated that Anthony Richardson showed up and had essentially like better composite relative athletic numbers than Cam Newton because when you watch a guy dominate to that degree in college and you're like oh he's just bigger faster stronger than everybody he's going up against my instinct for a long time was to just assume that that doesn't fly at the NFL level where all the athletes are bigger faster stronger but Josh Allen went from playing for Wyoming and just did the same thing to like, you know, the Minnesota Vikings. Like he just rocks up and starts leaping over linebackers and apparently being that freaking big, strong and fast does play at the next level. Cam Newton, the same thing. Like he does it for Auburn. You're like, there's no, you can't do that in the NFL. It's ridiculous. And then he just shows up, does exactly the same thing. If you're that big, strong and fast, that probably is going to work the same thing. And Richardson is that big, strong, and fast. So, all right, he may be further behind than any of them when it comes to passing, at least from an accuracy standpoint. And that's debatable. But the freaking size thing is not going to go away. Yeah, and that's why when, when we talk about Richardson, and again, and again, a lot of the pushback is you have to throw the ball at the NFL level. True. The athleticism allows him to throw the ball more effectively. Use the Lamar Jackson example that we used many years ago. If you tap into Anthony Richardson's athleticism, there'll be more open throws. And uh, whether the accuracy is pinpoint or not, you can at least complete those passes. The PFF NFL podcast is sponsored by Western and Southern Financial Group. While you focus on your roster moves, Western and Southern helps advance your money moves. Buying your first home, planning to start a family, wondering how to make your money grow, Western and Southern's playbook of life insurance, investment, and retirement solutions helps you rest assured on game day or draft night. Team up to understand needs and address goals with a game plan built just for you. Get started at westernsouthern.com slash pff go build your uh, draft board westernsouthern.com slash pff that's mm-hmm. what you can go do um and we appreciate western and southern for their studio right here in otr and their fine mug in cincinnati in their fine mug absolutely uh opening day this week by the way in cincinnati yeah it's a it's a holiday over here kind of yeah. big parade thursday and everything well, that means uh that means I don't know we were talking about UC, right? Not the not the Reds. I was thinking our rugby venue it could become trickier. Are we, not that the guy. We're not rugby on Thursday, are we? No, no, no. But generally, I, I might be going to the Reds game. Generally, Thursday. from this point on. Okay, opening day Thursday. Uh, not that check. our uh, not that our the guy supplying us with the videos has resurfaced after four days drinking yet. I mean, it could still be a while. So. Uh, uh, someone in the chats is saying uh, PFF's assuming Richardson's inaccuracy will go away. Is that justifiable? Nobody's assuming that. That's I, not like, what we're saying. So let me just get to it in a second. Number three overall, Daniel Jeremiah has Will Anderson going to the Arizona Cardinals. I think that's pretty standard. Anthony Richardson going to the Colts at four. Now, PFF is saying that Anthony Richardson's ac- inaccuracy is going to go away. Is that actually what we're saying? Nobody's ever said that. Like no. from day one, even last week when we put him at number one overall. We literally said the entire conversation comes down to determining whether you believe you can fix his accuracy or not. If you do, as an NFL team, if you like run it by Jordan Palmer or, you know, your QB coach or whoever you want, and that guy says, yeah, I can fix that. I see the mechanical problems. It's exactly the same thing as Josh Allen. It'll take 18 months of working behind the scenes. I can get it done. Not a problem. If you think that's true, that guy has the highest upside in the draft. Take him number one overall. 
If, however, you say, look, you can't fix accuracy, never goes away, it's always going to be a problem, even, you know, despite the Josh Allen and other data points. Like, if you've decided that this is just a part of his game and he will always be an inaccurate quarterback like Cam Newton was, then maybe you don't take him that high because he's way off the end of the scale in terms of accuracy issues. So nobody's ever assumed that the accuracy things will go away, but we do have several data points in recent history that says you can make inroads on accuracy, particularly, I would imagine, for a guy that's relatively inexperienced at the position. And the key point being, even if you think it'll take some time to fix, like that's the thing. Will it go away week one? No, just no way whatsoever. Will it go away week one, year two? Maybe. Will it go away week one, year three? If you think it's a two-year project to fix his accuracy, his level of freaky athleticism might let you start him for two years while you work on that in the background and slowly make him a better quarterback. That's the key. If you think you can get into that spot, however long it takes, that's what determines how high you can draft him. Yeah, so I think um, when we did our QB ranking show, go back and watch that if you haven't. I did. I pulled up a graphic and said, here's Anthony Richardson's accuracy percentage against other project type of quarterbacks who either did fix their accuracy at the NFL level or maybe didn't. Guys like Josh Allen and Justin Herbert and Lamar Jackson. Um, there's a few others on that list. Mitch Trubisky. And just showing it's not a – first off, it's not a one-to-one correlation. Like Mitchell Trubisky was kind of accurate in, uh, in college compared to what he's been in the NFL. Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson were far less accurate in college than they were than they have been in the NFL. Again, my answer to the Anthony Richardson stuff is if you use him properly, accuracy is the actual think about accuracy as where the ball actually goes, right? The Joe Montana to Jerry Rice front number slant. That's a perfect throw. However, if Anthony Richardson is used as a runner and there's misdirection and there's play action and that's your system, you're going to have a wide-open tight end. Think Cole Komet last year for the Bears. Cole Komet did not break out as this elite tight end last year. What happened was Justin Fields broke out as an elite runner, and all of a sudden Cole Komet was the beneficiary. He was the tight end for the Bears who was running wide open through the secondary because the defense had to account for Justin Fields as a runner, for the misdirection, for the play action. The most inaccurate quarterback in the NFL can hit the wide-open tight end over the middle of the field. That's what we're saying. Anthony Richardson is not going to look like Drew Brees or Tom Brady, most likely, right? But if you use him properly, Cole Komet or the equivalent is running wide open over the middle of the field. Anthony Richardson can make that throw. He might miss it once in a while too, but he can overall make that throw and you can create offense because of his skill set. That's what we're saying. Not that deficiencies are going to be fixed, but because of other plus attributes are going to offset some of those deficiencies. And if we had recorded this podcast five years ago, we probably would have been saying, eh, you can't fix accuracy. Yeah. You can't fix accuracy. And we, and we said that about Lamar Jackson and Josh Allen coming out. And I think both of those guys, they're the only two guys in our database to improve their adjusted completion percentage in the NFL by like 8 to 10%, whatever that – 8 to 10% adjusted completion percentage – from one year to the next. And that's not the best gauge of accuracy, but it's a gauge of putting the ball on your receiver, right? And those are massive no- – that is a massive increase. Does it mean Richardson's going to do it? Does it mean that Mitch Trubisky is going to do it at the NFL level next year? No, but it means we've at least seen it to this point, and it gives you a little bit more confidence that a guy like Anthony Richardson uh, will be able to make that step, make that leap. 
in addition to the fact that he's he is super athletic in the pocket and looks like he should be able to to make those adjustments with more experience. All of it is a projection, though. So Colts taking Richardson at four, getting back to the mock draft. What do you think of that? If he's the third quarterback off the board, is that where the Colts go? Yes, I think that makes sense. There's a lot of talk about things that the Colts might end up doing, um, you know, unusual things. Like, I, what's his name? Greg Doyle had an article that unfortunately was behind a paywall at the Indianapolis Star or whatever, uh, so I didn't read the full thing. But he was essentially saying that they're going to try and trade down and draft a guy like Hendon Hooker um, as their quarterback, and that they've sort of – because the Colts have been saying a lot of things the whole way. Like, everyone's assumed from day one, they're going to trade up to number one, they're going to trade up, they're going to get their guy, blah, blah, blah. Um, and really, since the outset, Chris Ballard, et cetera, has been saying, you know, everyone thinks you got to trade up to get a guy. It's not necessarily true, you know? And maybe that means they're going to sit there at four and draft whoever's available. Maybe that does mean that they're going to trade down, maximize the value of that pick, and draft one of the guys lower down. Um, now... Greg Doyle connected them to Hendon Hooker. Yes. Now, maybe that's the way, but I do think that the chances are that they sit there at four and see how it plays out is actually pretty high on the list. So the interesting thing there, going back to the Sloan panel for a second here, when we were going through scenarios for the Bears, and it was the, the, at the time it was you could draft Bryce Young and have two quarterbacks, or you could trade down and have Justin Fields and, you know, a bunch of other picks, which they did. The third thing that was posed there that nobody had brought up was what if the Bears trade down and take a quarterback, right? So essentially move to where the Colts are, where the Colts are, which is be okay taking the third quarterback off the board, right? Because if, if we claim we, the NFL and us, we're not great at predicting quarterbacks. So why, why trade up to go get a guy when there's a chance the second or third guy that gets drafted could be just as good, mm -hmm. particularly in this draft, right? In non-Trevor Lawrence drafts, in non-Andrew um, Luck type of drafts, even though Luck ended up the second best in his draft class. But in those, in, in situations where there really are question marks about the top, who the top three really are in the order and your preferences and all that stuff, why not stay pat, sit there and say, I'm okay getting the third. I'm just as likely to hit on the third quarterback as I am the first. And so there's an argument to be made. For that there would have been the argument for the bears was trade down get the third bet get a whole bunch of extra picks and get the third quarterback who gets drafted that that was never proposed as one of those internet discussion points but it's not crazy if the bears had to do it again to trade down get some picks go to four and you get anthony richardson you get will levis you get whoever and you're still taking a shot at quarterback you're still letting him challenge justin fields and you have the extra draft picks but you're basically just saying I don't know anything. I don't know who the best quarterback is. The Colts could could do that. Sit there at four and say, "I'll take I'll take the third guy on the board." And we've made this point before about Richardson, but he isn't like a lot of athletic project quarterbacks who are sort of terrible from a processing standpoint. Like that's a big big thing in his favor that he does process, go through reads, he does read the game pretty well. And a lot of reports are saying, you know, from team meetings, the whiteboard sessions, all that kind of stuff. Like he knows what he's doing, which is a really important thing because then what you are essentially talking about is literally a mechanical accuracy thing. Can we teach him to throw the ball more accurately? 
we don't need to teach him how to play quarterback. That part he can actually do. He just can't deliver the ball to where it needs to be accurately enough right now. The other element is, so Josh Allen is going to get used as a comparison or a, a player that showed the pathway for a lot of guys. And it's going to be dumb most of the times because Josh Allen is like a singular historical outlier, right? Nobody has done what he's done in terms of being that far away from accuracy and fixing it. So it's probably not a smart thing to go, well, Josh Allen did it a few years ago, so Anthony Richardson can do it now. I will say, though, that he doesn't need to go as far, not because he's better as a passer or more accurate than Josh Allen, but because he's more athletic. Like, Allen's athleticism has been a real plus at the NFL level, and Anthony Richardson is significantly better. Like, he's there's basically the same height. Richardson is uh, seven pounds heavier based off these combine numbers. But Josh Allen ran a 4.75. Richardson ran a 4.4. His 10-yard split is like a tenth of a second faster. He is... Uh, he had seven inches more in the vertical jump. Like, he is significantly more explosive. He's bigger. He's faster. And that's been a plus for Josh Allen. Like, that's helped him sort of stay surviving as a starter while he worked out how to fix the accuracy. So let's say he can only do 75% of what Allen can do in terms of getting more accurate. Well, he's got that 25% already by running a 4-4 at 245 pounds. Like, he's already like bridge that 25% by being that much more athletic. Richardson could be a legit 1,200-yard rusher if that's what his team chooses to do with him. Now, do you want to have him get hit that many times and all that stuff? I mean, Richardson, he was a little banged up at times at Florida. He'd miss him kind of like Justin Fields, where Fields would miss a few plays. Like, there was like five straight games where Justin Fields missed at least a few plays, right? He just kept getting hurt and right. this and that. So. There's something to that, too, trying to avoid that. But um, good points, though, on Richardson being that special of an athlete that it'll, it'll offset a lot of the other deficiencies there. So Richardson goes four to the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, number five is the Seattle Seahawks. They go Jalen Carter. So everything's – this isn't chalk necessarily, but it's the, it's the five that most mock drafts have going in the top five. Jalen Carter going number five to the Seattle Seahawks. Will Anderson's off the board to the Arizona Cardinals. Again, we assume the off the off field is is sorted here. This makes sense, I think, for Seattle. Seems like a likely move for mm -hmm. them at five to take Jalen Carter, and then it's the uh, the tipping point. What do the Lions do at number six? They go Devin Witherspoon. Is it Devin or Devon? I don't know Devin. I I've been saying Devin. Yeah, yeah. Someone else said Devon recently, and it you know got in my head. So I haven't <laughs> looked it up because I just said Devin. Devin Witherspoon, the top corner on the PFF draft board, I believe, right? Um, consensus board has Christian Gonzalez slightly ahead, mm -hmm. um, which, by the way, there is a connection with Christian Gonzalez and the Detroit Lions. David Blau's brother-in-law oh, in yes. Detroit. That could be the tipping point for uh, Christian Gonzalez there. That's, that's the move. Going number six. Uh, but Devin Witherspoon going number six to the Lions. Incredible season last year. Did you mention my, uh, the yeah. one-year wonder I thing? Brought it up to, uh, I brought it up to a young Michael who said— he just, he just asked me about it for an article. Yeah, there you go. He said what you need to do is to differentiate between the players that had uh, just one season of play, essentially, as a starter, and the guys that actually played for three, four years but only had one season of good play. He thinks there's an important difference. Uh, yeah, there is. Yeah, I mean, I just, I just threw it out there. So I did um, really quick. I think we should do a show where we just, we just talk about player evals just from a data-driven standpoint. 
throw all the data points at at the people and you know things that we could find in the database that are interesting don't necessarily mean do this or do that but it's like things you need to consider to me one of the things you need to consider is Devin Witherspoon did play a lot of football and then had one great year what does that mean where do you know what what has happened historically with other players who have done that and I think it's a fair point so like when I look at the players that we considered one year wonders and I define that by take getting at least 90% of their wins above average. So it's a cumulative number. They, they, they achieved 90% of that in one, in one season, basically. Um, so whether they only played a handful of snaps previously or they played multiple seasons, but they just had that one big year. So there are hits on the list, like Marshawn Lattimore. He's the guy that Renner would bring up that said he basically didn't play. Mm-hmm. And then when he did play, he was elite. Let's throw him out. Um, and that'd be fair. But the hit rate for, call them one-year wonders at cornerback, is not great for first and second rounders compared to overall hit rate. You I think guys- his argument was actually the opposite, that the guys that didn't, the not playing was the bigger red flag than playing and playing not well for multiple I think, years. Oh, I mean, I, however you want to look at it. I think I'm remembering that right. But, like, Lattimore wasn't playing because there was a reason. Ohio State always has right. good corners, and then when he played, he became the best corner that they've had, along with Denzel Ward in recent years. Um, the, the players like Witherspoon, who were average and then broke out, there's something to be said for those guys. But the other players on the list that were one-year wonders, the only one that we would classify as a hit is Greg Newsom from Northwestern, first-rounder for the, for the Browns, has been an above-average corner in the NFL. Marshawn Lattimore has been an elite corner in the NFL. Byron Murphy is the other one. He's been an, a, an average corner by our numbers using war per season. There's a lot of other misses on this list. Mike Hughes, Derek Stingley, jury's still out on him. He's only had one year. It was below average. Caleb Farley, he was on this list, I think, in part, be- in part because he opted out because of the COVID year. So take that for what it's worth. Eli Apple was a one-year wonder. C.J. Henderson from Florida. Those are first-round picks who just did not pan out. Uh, Damon Arnett with Ohio State did not pan out. So there's some risk associated with Devin Witherspoon. I think we could have a whole show around those types of data-driven discussions at some point but um all that said i love devin witherspoon as a player i think this is the first uh sort of big mock that i've seen that that kind of agrees with our take like we've a lot of times pff has been sort of shoehorning devin witherspoon to the detroit lions at number six now part of this was pre-free agency before they added a whole bunch of uh guys to that secondary and sort of no longer felt you know no longer have to reach quote unquote for that but the only reason that was sort of there was like an awareness, I think, that that was maybe a reach or that we were, you know, putting our number one corner at this spot when a lot of people had Gonzalez as number one or and, and the consensus generally was that neither one of them is necessarily worth number six overall. So I just think it's it's fascinating that Jeremiah has also gone with this pick, um, you know, outside of PFF's ecosystem of having Devin Witherspoon as a number one guy. I have to say this draft, I know sometimes you hear, this draft's good, this this draft's not good. Uh, and sometimes that's overrated, right? We're all trying to predict these things or whatever. But compared to a couple years ago, it does feel weaker, right? The 2020, sorry, there's the 21 NFL draft that I wanted. The 2021 NFL draft where we had Jalen Waddle go number, so Jamar Chase goes five, Jalen Waddle goes six, he's end up, He's looked great. Panay Sewell goes seven. 
Like, Panay Sewell goes top three in other drafts. In, in last year's draft, Panay Sewell might go number one overall instead of Trayvon Walker. Uh, J.C. Horn and Patrick Sertan back-to-back felt like, yeah, they're very clear-cut top 10 caliber corners. At least Sertan, I think, felt like that. Devontae Smith went 10, and you still got Micah Parsons at 12 and Rashawn Slater at 13. I think all of, we had Slater and Parsons going in the top 10 in other mock drafts. I think this year's draft does feel like a bit more of a crapshoot where there's fewer fewer non-quarterbacks that you're like, yep, absolutely. That I guy mean, is uh, that guy's a blue chip player. Right. He needs to be in the top 10. We've been talking about this as outside of the quarterbacks there are two blue chip players. And now one of them has legal troubles in Jalen Carter and, you know, showing up to the pro day not in shape, et cetera. And the other one is Will Anderson. And Ben Stockwell made the point to us, I think, after whenever he got around to listening to the last podcast they'd listened to. Like, you can make an argument, like, is Anderson actually a blue chip player? Because as, as much as he's been very good and his grading has been excellent, his production has been fantastic, it hasn't been quite at that Nick Bosa, Joey Bosa, you know, Miles Garrett. It's not been quite at that elite, 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 elite level that we know translates really well and does phenomenally well. It's been that step behind where the, the sort of hit rate is still pretty good, but not where it is for those other guys. Like, you can ask the question about whether Anderson is really a blue chip guy. I'd say he is. I think he, I think he is. Draft model. A draft model he is. I, 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 look, I, it's a fair question to bring. We brought it up about Aiden Hutchinson last year. Yeah, it's a uh, similar idea, right? We end up, Hutchinson ends up 98th percentile in the model. Will Anderson's 94th. And usually when you, dra- when you, dra- when you draft a first rounder in that 94 plus percentile like you're gonna and Hutchinson is helping him on the basis that certainly at the end the second half of last season he was playing fantastically you know if you think that it took him eight weeks to get his feet wet and then from that point on he's become a really good player that suggests that Anderson you know has that kind of ability but like the the Nick Bosa's Joey Bosa's Miles Garrett's of the world like those guys were posting high 90s PFF pass rushing grades uh over their careers Will Anderson never topped 90. Like, it's been 83 when he had a ton of pressure. It's been 86 last year. These are good numbers, but they're not great numbers. He is, he is I think, a tick below Aiden Hutchinson as a prospect, maybe. But I still feel pretty good about him. So that brings us to the number seven overall pick. And so here's another somewhat pivot point here. So Witherspoon goes six to the Lions. The Raiders are the next QB needy team, followed by the Falcons, seven and eight, as teams that could take quarterbacks. Neither one takes a quarterback. So you have not heard Will Levis's name in this draft yet from Daniel Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. He ends up dropping quite a bit here. So the Raiders go Tyree Wilson, the edge from Texas Tech at number seven. And then Daniel Jeremiah has the Falcons going Christian Gonzalez, the cornerback from the Falcons at, I'm sorry, from Oregon to the Falcons at number eight. So now we see the next possible QB landing spot. A lot of us are saying, hey, four QBs in the top 10. But in real life, a lot of times, yep. a QB does drop. I do think Levis is the most likely quarterback to fall out of the top 10. That's what Daniel Jeremiah has here in his mock draft. Yeah, I think that's probably true. As much as I like him more than most, I think he's the one that I can definitely imagine dropping. I think there, there are a lot of data points for him that would scare teams. You know, he is older. He is coming off the bad year, which is, again, I, like even I don't have any idea what the hell to do with that 
as a general concept. What do you do when the guy's coming off his worst year? Um, the banana. The banana? Eating the banana with the peel on. Oh, I see. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're, so the, you're just listing red flags. No, no, I get usually, it. I got, I'm there usually now. lead with the banana Agreed. for Will Levis. Um, somebody apparently, so the, the mayo and the coffee one is not quite as bad as it seemed, I think. Apparently he only did that like once for a joke and it ah. became a thing, you know? Yeah. As opposed to like I, I occasionally have mayo and the coffee because why not? You know, that would be a problem. But yeah. like yeah, there disgusting. was nothing on the table. We did, decided to do it for a giggle and then – it became a thing. That's I can get that. Duke's Mayo Bowl and their stupid Mayo dump that they do. Yeah, no need for that. There's no need for it. Don't don't call them stupid. We could get a you know we could get a Mayo sponsorship. It could be a big bowl of this thing sitting on the table. <sighs> Fine, we'll do Duke's, at any time. Duke's Mayo. We will accept you as a sponsor. <laughs> to me, the biggest scare, the biggest sort of frightening thing from his game though is where are the big plays? Even the good year, the you know 2021. 2021, where I think he was genuinely much, much better. And that, like, I would go to bat for that player within an NFL offensive scheme, blah, blah, blah. There still wasn't that many big plays. Like, his big-time throw rate is abysmal for a guy. Like, if you heard Will Levis described, you know, cannon for an arm, all the tools, you'd be like, okay, I know what that looks like. We're going to see a lot of big plays. We're going to see a lot of turnover-worthy plays. You know, you would describe that kind of player. Only... He hasn't been. His big-time throw rate is terrible for his career. Get this guy out of the chat. New charity event idea. Steve has to wash his hair with mayo. Well, that's never happening. Ever. That's, it wasn't that – oh, no, it was butter that, uh, that Anthony Trash had to have dumped on his head because of the bet with Eric. Oh, the doctor dumped butter on his head. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was good. Yeah, I'm not going to do that. No, I mean, he said it was one of those things drills. that, like, it was a bad idea. You know what I mean? Like, in theory, it sounds bad. But in practice, it's yeah. so much worse because that thing takes like 12 showers to get out. To answer your Will Levis question, it, it's interesting because at the NFL level, we've seen guys like Matthew Stafford and Derek Carr go through lulls in their game where the big-time throws disappear. So we know that, that big-time throws – I mean, honestly, even Patrick Mahomes, his big-time throw rate has decreased a ton over the last two years. But it's because it's tied to scheme, right? This year in particular in Kansas City, they just decided we're going to have more yards after the catch than any team in NFL history. We're going to, we're going to take what the defense gives us, and that's how we're going to run the offense. It wasn't necessarily a knock yeah. on Patrick Mahomes. But what I'm saying is Stafford and Carr are two guys who have showed the ability to make those throws. And then at the NFL level, the offensive scheme, the system, the playmakers, for whatever reason, kind of neutered them a little bit. But they had this couple years to point to where it's like go back to that go back to being you know a little bit more aggressive that would be the concern with Levis is even in his his best year it wasn't like he's dropping big time throws in left and right so it's one of those if you watch the film you see the arm strength velocity you see a far hash back shoulder against Georgia that was absolutely incredible you don't see it enough and that might be the concern is like why aren't we seeing more of this yeah across multiple schemes and even in will levis's best season? he's so what I, i'm he's the most difficult evaluation i think of the four um because there's always this balance between excuses and actual reasons you know real true causes for certain things and excuses that are just justifying what are problems or what are things on tape so there are a bunch of concerning data points for Will Levis, but I do think that quite a lot of them are reasonably explained by the situation around him. So 
abysmal supporting cast for the most part, going against good competition, which is I think is an important additional addendum to that. It wasn't just abysmal supporting cast going up against abysmal supporting cast. It was abysmal supporting cast going up against some of the best teams in the nation. Um, number two, a thing you'll see a lot of analytics people point to, he's got a pretty atrocious rate of turning pressure into sacks, which is largely speaking a quarterback-driven data point. Um, but I think there's an I think there's like a line where that's to a degree, like it's you know Peyton Manning was always at the sharp end of that, but. There's a point to which if you make the supporting cast around the quarterback so bad, he just doesn't have anywhere to go with the ball. And if you pressure him, it's like, what is he supposed to do? Do you just want him to throw it away 50 times a game? I think overall sack rate is, is a better, because it encapsulates that as well as just how often you're inviting pressure, right? Because we, even just pressure rate is somewhat dependent on the quarterback. That would be a concern. Same concern we have with Justin Fields. Um, even Joe Burrow was bad at that in college and bad at it at the NFL level so far. But he I, offsets yeah. it by greatness everywhere else. Right. But it is a pretty consistent data point. And, and well, Will Levis doesn't look like he has the greatness everywhere else to offset it. No, but my point is, is it a real number um, as opposed to another symptom of the situation around him, which I think is prohibitively bad to actually show anything different? So, you know, Peyton Manning, for example – when he got to the end of his career and fell off a cliff and couldn't really get the ball anywhere, his pressure, his sack, sack from pressure rate spiked. Now, it didn't spike to like, you know, 25% or anything, but it went up like five points over anything we've seen previous in his career. Uh, I th- and the, the first year in Denver, remember where he had to like relearn how to play? It spiked again. Those are the two highest numbers he ever had in his career, which was number one, couldn't put the ball where he needed to get it both times, essentially, right? So I think Levis has a similar situation for different reasons. Like he couldn't get the ball where he needed to go because none of his receivers were open ever. And the offensive line wasn't great, so he was getting pressured quite a lot. And there's only so much like running around back there you can do before you have to get rid of the ball. You're quite the Levis apologist. I appreciate that. Um, He's going to fall. We'll talk about it. Well, we've talked about him probably enough, but we'll put a bow on the Will Levis discussion when we find out where he drops in Daniel Jeremiah's mock draft that's already available on NFL.com if you want to follow along. Um, But at 7-8, and Tyree Wilson to the Raiders and Christian Gonzalez to the Falcons. I know I was a little harsh to Tyree Wilson. Yes, you said you wouldn't draft him. Yeah, because... He was on your do-not-draft list was your phrase. Have you come up with a better name for that yet? Uh, Let someone else draft him. (laughs) Draft him lower. That's certainly better. I draft him late first Uh more than anything. Um, I rewatch. I mean, I, I sent you a message too. I rewatched Tyree Wilson as a pass rusher. There is a lot to be impressed about uh-huh. last year. The concern is that the data is not kind when you compare him to other oh. top ten edge defenders at a position where the data ma- data matters more. Yes. Right. If you if I said, hey, the Devin Witherspoon data at corner, that's eh, not great. I'd say corner willing to you know lean a little bit less on the data, but when it comes to edge defenders. There are concerns taking Tyree Wilson in the top ten. Yeah. Um, now, one thing that's so we were talking before about how you know is it a red flag for Will Anderson that his pass rushing grade has never been above what eighty six or whatever it was? Well, Wilson's has never been above eighty. Period. That's yeah. that's not good. That being said, you can see on the screen there where we've got a sheet from his uh, uh, draft guide or on the mock draft sim as well because the same kind of data. The true pass set 
pass rushing grade there is the highest number that he has. So actually, if you strip out the kind of stuff that warps um, pass rushing performance, you know, screens, all that kind of crap where it's not a true pass rushing play, he does get better. So maybe the data in his case is actually unkind because he plays in a conference where there's a lot of that, you know, fake fake offense that isn't really pass yeah. rushing. There is definitely some scheme-based stuff. He's moved in uh, on the inside a lot. He had to play, you know, it is fascinating in college. They like to play those tight fronts and basically a three-man line with one edge defender. And right. a lot of really good edge defender prospects like Will McDonald from Iowa State play one of those interior three spots that is basically like eat up blockers. And it doesn't match their, match their skill set. Uh, Trayvon Walker had elements of this last year where we said, hey, maybe the scheme is holding him down a little bit. But as I said with Trayvon Walker, it's like, fine, maybe he, maybe he was held back. But that doesn't mitigate the risk involved with, I haven't seen him do it the way I've seen other prospects do it. So there's risk. But if the Raiders go to uh, Tyree Wilson here, then that probably leads to a potential Will Levis drop. And then if the Falcons go Christian Gonzalez, as Daniel Jeremiah has here at eight, uh, a pick, I, I think that's a good solid pick at eight for the Falcons. That leads to the Will Levis potential drop here. So Gonzalez goes eight. Um, add some youth to the Falcons cornerback room that already has Casey Hayward and A.J. Terrell. So now you're looking at, you know, Hayward gets older and then it becomes Christian Gonzalez and A.J. Terrell going forward. Kind of like that. Mm -hmm. Just uh, one last data point on Tyree uh, Wilson. True pass sets this past season. His pass rushing grade actually leaps Will Anderson. They both end up in 88 point whatever, but he's 88.6. Anderson's 88.1. Yeah. But... When you look at the whole body of work, yes, it's not even close. No, so that goes. And so going back to the one-year wonder thing, that's Tyree Wilson also applies. One-year wonders for edge defenders. Uh, I don't have my results. We'll save it for the data show. Uh, I'll go through the one-year wonders at edge defender. It's there's two that have hit actually off the top of my head: Jalen Phillips, okay. and there's one other player who were considered hits, but both of those guys in my model were 80 you know they were they were high in the model so it's like all right they they and the model accounts for their entire career so it's so it kind of offsets that a little bit Tyree Wilson doesn't have the rest of the career to maybe offset the one the one year breakup gotcha so I like Christian Gonzalez to the Falcons as well at eight I think that's good fit good need mid meshes good draft pick now Scott. I want to hear now I want to hear what the model says about stumpy little T-Rex arms guys Peter Skaronsky uh-huh it loves him as a tackle. Now, really? So I'm not that sophisticated, Sam. All I can do is say, look at arm length. Mm -hmm. Tell me how much it's mattered historically and toss it in. Toss it into the model. Yeah. Right? What I haven't done is say, so th overall, arm length doesn't matter, right? It's not a, it's not a big data point, right? It, in, but, but I'm, I'm, because there's a lot of bad long arm tactics. Yeah, because I'm stuck in linear model world that I can't do anything else with any sort of dimension to it. There's going to be some bad. There's some bad 34, 35 inch arm arm right. length guys, and there's some pretty good 33 and a half arm length guys. Um, there aren't many. What I don't have is, I mean, you could just you could just throw these guys into you know buckets, and you could say who who has sub 30 33 inch arms and actually yeah, gets to play tackle. it's like well it's like that's the thing it's like a threshold thing right there are, there's definitely a lot of 33 ish arm length guys that are good um 
there aren't that many when you start getting to the 32s, which is where Skoronsky is. He's 32 and a quarter, I think. So that's where you start to run very low on good offensive tackles. Like it's basically Braden Smith. I don't even know if anybody's had the opportunity. Is it just Braden Smith? Yeah, yeah Braden a couple Smith, other 33, guys. 30, 32 and a quarter. There's a couple other guys. The, the names that I threw at Renner, though, that really fascinated me was two guys who uh, had arms of ca- comparable length and were, ma- were made or kicked inside to guard. So Marshall Yanda and Zach Martin, each of whom we've seen play at a very high level at tackle in the NFL. Yanda, I think, could have been an all-pro, pro-ball right tackle for the Ravens if he'd stayed there for his entire career, ended up becoming the best guard of his generation instead. And Zach Martin, who I don't think was ever considered really as a tackle, but has had to play right tackle in a pinch when the Cowboys have had injuries and held up more than fine there. So those become the interesting names to me. It's like, now, is that what Skoronsky is, effectively? Where a guy that could probably play right tackle at a pretty high degree, or we kick him inside the guard where he becomes like the best guard of the next 10 years? Like, is that what we're looking at? Yeah, and I'd be fine. I'd be fine with taking a really good guard for the Bears at nine here. I think, I think that's cool. That's fine. Um, I will say I'm a little less excited about Skaronsky, the guard. I'm not saying he should definitely play tackle. Of course, my thought process is bring him in, let him try tackle. If he lands at guard, fine. Teams don't do that. They think that's stunting development or whatever. That's how I would handle it. It does make me less inclined to go that way. If you know you're getting a good guard, there's value there, I think. But when you see the next players off the board and you see some of the defensive linemen that would really help the Bears, yeah, maybe that ends up being the play rather than Skaronsky at guard, but I'm fine. I've given them... Skaronsky to the Bears before as well. So we'll go into we'll go into more detail on the, the, the data driven show. It, for, for Chicago in particular though, I mean maybe not. Like it, depending on how they that offensive line falls, but I don't know that they have as big a need at guard as like right tackle is their obvious spot where they need the upgrade. Like if you give Skaronsky a go shot. Paris Johnson. Right. Like if you give Skaronsky a shot and he fails a tackle and you end up kicking him into guard, okay, he can probably upgrade that spot as well. But now you still have that glaring need at right tackle that you'd have no fix for. Like if they if they're taking the approach of we don't know that this guy is a tackle, maybe they're actually in the market for a different tackle. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think Paris Johnson could be the guy in play there. Uh, Peter Skaronsky goes nine to the Bears. Then the Eagles come up at ten. They go Lucas Van Ness, the power edge. From Iowa, uh, this feels like a pretty common play for the Eagles. Not necessarily Van Ness, but just defensive line in general. Yeah, they might circle back and grab another defensive lineman at thirty. That's going to be interesting to see here in Jeremiah's mock. The Titans at eleven. They've been the place that seems to grab Paris Johnson quite a bit to mm-hmm. bring him in a tackle. But they signed Andre Dillard, so they go Jackson Smith and Jigba to add to Traylon Burks. There, did we do that last week as well? Did we go Smith and Jigba? Uh, maybe. It's certainly come up before. So, again, this mock draft came before the Ohio State Pro Day. Yes. Smith and Jigba runs a 4-5-3 on most scouts' stopwatches. We it's had a lot of 4-5-3s. What's that? It's about where everybody thought he would be. 4-5 guy. Yeah, but it still plays in your head, right? Like the, when, Negatively so, for him? I think people would still have loved to see just 4-4-9. Four, four, right? Well, the sure difference they, they, between 4-4-9 no. four, four, and 4-5-3. <laughs> there's probably... Somebody out there is like, oh, man, do I really want to take this 4-5-3 guy? 
in the top 15. I think a low 4-5 for him ticks the box. It's like I anything lower than a 4-6, I'm fine with. Like, just don't don't give me a number that makes me concerned. Like, that's all people were asking for, for a Smith and Jigba. It's just don't give me a number that I now need to go and think, all right, how many guys at this speed have been success? Like, you know what I mean? Just tick the box. Yeah. I don't care how fast it is. Just don't give me a number that I now uh, need to go, ah, crap. I'm, I'm not always great at this, but in my notes for uh, Smith and Jigba, I said, long speed, question mark, 455 look. There you go. Oh, look, I like, look at that. Just, you know, that's and that's how, uh, that's how people evaluate, right? Like, this guy looks like this number. Yeah. And uh, he ran this number. Good. There we go. So, yeah, I'd be good with Smith and Jigba there for the Titans. Stock up that receiving core with A.J. Brown gone. I don't know what my, my speed note is for him. What's that? Uh, fast enough. Don't care what his 40 is. Don't. Uh, but if it said 464, you'd be like, oh, no, I care. No, don't care. Don't care, care what his 40 is. And then I said, four, doesn't, seven. doesn't harm him running routes or after the catch. So I'm good with it. My, one of my biggest pet peeves, though, is when people reference Keenan Allen as a 4-7 guy. That's really annoying to me. Well, that's like he's the, four five five. He is Smith and Jigba. That's like the Joe Thomas has thirty two inch arms thing. It turns out he doesn't at all. He has thirty two to thirty five inch arms, depending yeah. on who's measuring. That's the other thing. Maybe Skaronsky had a uh, had a bad arm measure guy. Maybe when's Northwestern's Although, pro day? Did it was pretty improve? consistent. I think he's had thirty two and a quarter the last like three times he's been measured. You never so. know. It's, can they uh, do a thing? You know, that, it's stretch uh, them out season, right? You know the palm yeah. stretching thing. There's got to yeah. be a way where you can just get in like a traction machine and like lengthen out the wingspan. No, I think what you got to do is your you if you train your scapula properly, you can loosen your, it right up. Get your scap to create more. Yeah, I mean, it feels if you can coax an extra half an inch out of your hand size, there's got to be a way of like stretching out your arms, right? Yeah, well, hopefully Peter's going to find it. Uh, <laughs> Titans, Smith and Jigba at 11. The Texans are up at 12. They take Miles Murphy, the Clemson edge defender. Seems like a bit of a forgotten player early in the yeah. process. He was a top 10 you know, caliber player as far as Mark Drafts go, and then you start to see him in the 20s. Texans taking him at 12. Uh, last year they take, took Kenyon Green at 14, the guard from Texas A&M. It's uh, Nick Casario and uh, the Patriots tree there. They're always – probably going to take somebody that's away from the consensus i would say in the teens a reach i said away from the consensus you did i i try i paraphrase it to a reach thank you so miles murphy going there add to the uh to the defensive line in houston uh -huh. so they don't go the qb receiver route right that we've seen before that's the other thing that's happening here is receivers are dropping a touch and i think what daniel jeremiah is showing here as the jets at 13 go nolan smith from georgia Jeremiah loves, I think from what I've seen from him, the tight end class and the edge defender class. Mm -hmm. He loves these edges. He has a bunch of them going high with Tyree Smith. I'm sorry, Tyree Wilson going seven. Now Miles Murphy at 12, Nolan Smith at 13 to the Jets. The, uh, the Texans have added a wide receiver in recent days, right? Didn't they bring somebody in? They Robert traded Woods. Brandon Cooks. Robert Woods. I knew they'd added something. So. Yeah, they brought in Woods right. this year to go with Nico Collins. I mean, that's still a step backwards, theoretically, when you consider they traded away Brandon Cooks, but uh, it potentially I minutes. Mean, but that system is probably more of a straight two-wide receiver system anyway. Yeah. Compared to and it probably, again, it's, it's like do, it's maybe at least saving them from having to draft a wide receiver in the first round at number 12. And when you're picking at 12, you probably want to love, love a receiver. 
I think it's easy for teams to not love anybody. I mean, if even if, even if Smith and Jigba is the top guy for us, we heard. I don't know if this has changed. We'll have to ask Dane Brugler. Remember to ask him this when he's on the show in a couple of weeks. Months ago, he was saying some teams had a third round grade on him. Yeah, months ago. Right. That's just watching film but before I think, he runs in the four fives. But I think a huge part of that is um, is uh, when you have a wide receiver specifically that has a that has to play a certain position for essentially cannot play X. And I think there's an argument that he can play X, but anyway, I'm, I'm out. The actual receiver X, not just a, some unknown variable. Right. I'm out on an island on that one. I'm, I'm fine with that. So let's assume that's not on the table. If, if you say that Jackson Smith and Jigba cannot be an X receiver, but can be a really high level uh, Z or slot receiver at the next level, when you sort of say, yeah, but he can't do this, NFL teams immediately hate that guy when it comes to wide receiver for and a reason I don't quite understand. But like, so I think there's a world where you can absolutely love the guy, but think he's only a slot receiver, so that's a second round player, which to me is nuts. Like if you think he's that freaking good at that role, that's well worth a first round pick. It's well worth a pretty high first round pick. I, I've been on record saying the complete opposite. I, I am okay with a number two receiver being a top 15 pick if yeah. he's really good at being that number two exactly. receiver like what is Amon Russell Brown worth in abstract terms in this draft let's say he was in this draft and you knew what he was what's that worth I mean he's top 10 pick right yeah so if that's who you think he can be then that's worth that pick even if you don't think he can be Randy Moss like don't don't characterize him by what he can't do characterize him by what that brings to your offense um, so Nolan Smith is an interesting pick here at at 13, guy that uh, ran in the 441 at the combines, coming off a knee injury. Um, another guy, I think, on a straight data-driven show, we can have some some interesting data points. He's sub 240 pounds. Mm-hmm. Is that a concern? Right. He, when I watched him, I mentioned uh, there were some some reminds me of Von Miller in there, and you brought up when I made that point, you said, "Well, Von's 10 to 15 pounds heavier than him." Um, and he's a, he's, I'm not saying he's Von Miller. I'm just saying he's got some pop in his hands. He's got some power, but there's not a ton of edge defenders who are great against the run under 240 pounds. Is that okay for a guy that you're taking at 13? We've seen effective edge rushers. No, he was at that weight. What's that? No, no, he's, yeah. he's a good, he's a good college run defender. I'm saying historically the run defenders who are under 240 aren't great. We're talking about Leonard Floyd's good and solid. We're talking like the Manny Lawsons of the world. Hassan Reddick, who's not great as a run defender. Martivius Mingo. We're talking about guys that have been just okay in that area. But we've seen good, effective, undersized edge rushers, including Hassan Reddick, right? There might be some Hassan Reddick comps for Nolan Smith. Size and burst and explosiveness and all that fun stuff. So kind of like it at 13 for the Jets. And uh, just adds another body to the mix with Carl Lawson and what they have over there. Yeah, no, I think that has the potential to be a really nice addition to that uh, to that defense. Great pacings for the show here today. So let's go. <laughs> Number fourteen, the New England Patriots go Bijan Robinson. Wow. What do you think? Um, I mean, generally, I hate running backs going to the Patriots just because they ruin that backfield with committees and, you know, it never works the way you think it'll work. So that would annoy me. Forget ruining it. They just have success with non-first-round running backs. Yeah. 
And but they'll end up they'll draft Bijan and then they'll like have an undrafted rookie and he'll end up getting twice the number of snaps and that'll just drive me insane. Which is why they should never draft Bijan. I mean, maybe. Yeah, I mean, they got Ramondre Stevenson over there. Where'd they get him? Sixth. Looking good, right? They have they have had a revolving door of running backs. The one year where Sony Michelle actually did get a ton of carries as a first round pick, he was like the worst of their group for a few years. Patriots have spent two first round picks on running backs: Lawrence Maroney back in 06 mm. and Sony Michelle in 2018 they're as bad drafting running backs high as they are wide receivers it's just they managed to fix it with the lower round guys it's the same question though like what what was the trigger that said now we're going to go back to the running back well in the first round for sony michelle Lawrence maroney was a i mean 06 drafting running backs in the first round was fine it was late first maroney was a very good prospect but almost immediately he was very good right away and then almost immediately it's like oh we found better guys did you see uh dano's tweet Dan Orlovsky's tweet about like drafting running backs in the first round. Yeah, they they all produce, they all hit. Yeah, but but that was based off like uh, Sony Michelle has a Super Bowl ring. Hit. <laughs> that was the hit. Well, no, that was one of the hits. Essentially, they all hit based off the standards of that. Like, if you won a championship and or played well and or you know played a lot for your team, you you nailed it. Strike. Gosh, man. Are we getting Dano on the show at some point? It's harder to go directly to Dano. Just let's just talk to Mina and say, get us. Can we get directly to Dan? Didn't Lee she already send ESPN. you directly to Dan? What? Didn't she already send you directly? No, I think to Dan? she sent us to their their people. You can't go to the people. No, the people don't care. They don't know that we're a top five NFL podcast featuring an Irishman. They don't know the impact that we have. I mean, the people in the community. No, the people here. are awkward to deal with. Yeah. Dano doesn't follow me. Does he follow you? No. That's why I can't DM him. Yeah. So you ask Mina to have him follow you <laughs> so that you can DM him directly. Because I'm DMing Sims, right? I know, but, I know, you know. We I know. talk. Yeah. We ha- we've, we've hung out before, right? I have that relationship with yeah. him. I don't, I don't with Dano. No. You know? But we need him on here we to do defend Sony Michelle's a hit because he won a Super Bowl one year. Yeah. Right? I think, um, anyway. I think you'd struggle to make that argument. Look, the – that's the whole thing about running backs. If you want, and I've heard, I've heard Hall of Fame GMs say, of course you draft running backs in the first round. Look at the list of Hall of Famers. Yeah. They were all drafted in the first round. Of course you do that. You can justify your running back picks any way you want. There's a lot of places. Yeah, there's a lot of places that Bijan in the first round makes sense to me. This is not one of them. Especially when I think the Patriots in the AFC East – where they're going to look like the fourth best team. They're going to have the fourth best quarterback. Right. Like, what moves the needle? This, again, is not it. Like, they're going to have the fourth best passing game. <laughs> right? But, um, but unless, so help me God, we're going to run the damn ball. And look, for years, there's been the question, well, when the NFL's going one way, mm-hmm. is a team, or is Bill Belichick going to go the other way? Is he going to go, we're going to play 80s football. We're, we're going to run I-formation, yeah. Mac Jones, under center, Play action, seven-step dropbacks, hard play action, fake to the running back, dump it off to the fullback in the flat. That's how we're going to crush the Buffalo Bills. So there's just to answer that, right, will there be a team that goes power football because everybody's getting small? Defense is getting smaller. There we have. It's Atlanta. But, like, who's going to go the other way and run the ball? You, those are, like, effective – in-game advantages here and there. We've seen the Patriots exploit a couple 
advantages against the Bills a couple years ago, right? Where they have a wind game and it's like, we could be a power running team and we can win this one particular game. The problem is when you're trying to do it over the course of a season and you're trying to compete for a championship, presumably going power run football with a immobile quarterback or a non-running quarterback actually isn't an advantage or strategy over time. It's a tactical one-game advantage here and there. Like if the Patriots draft Bijan Robinson, they might steal a game against the Bills where they power run against them. They might, but I don't think they're winning the AFC East because of it. The Patriots need to make moves that are going to help them win the AFC East well, over the Bills, and I don't think drafting a running back is going to do that. I mean, the other thing is you hear all the time that the NFL, like it's cyclical, right? Scheme is cyclical. It goes in these cycles. It goes back, and eventually you end up doing the same thing that you did 20, 30 years ago. That might be true, but I don't think it goes directly back. Like I think – so today's offenses. It's a passing league. It's never been more pass happy. Okay, but we're not running the run and shoot directly. Like we've made additions. We've made changes. We've evolved the system. We're, we're more sophisticated now than we were the last time the league was really pass happy, which has happened before. So I think if you want to make the argument that at some point somebody's going to swing back and we're going to be run heavy again – it's probably true, but I don't think it's going to go back to being what we just talked about, like I formation, you know, running back, tailback, fullback, quarterback under center. It's going to be like what the Falcons are doing. It's going to be that style of run-heavy offense, not sort of this would be a style of going back to just we're just going to go back to 2006 NFL offense, and I don't think that works. Uh, Daniel Jer- so Daniel Jeremiah's mock, he's got Bijan going to the Patriots. He says, the Patriots don't think like every other franchise. I believe they could see Robinson as a valuable addition instead of a player at a non-premium position. Yeah. So uh, he would team up with Ramondre Stevenson to give New England one of the best backfields in the NFL. At 15, the Packers go Paris Johnson to come in and play tackle and uh, shore up that offensive line for Jordan Love. Of course, in this mock draft, we don't have – the 13th overall pick going to the Packers for Aaron Rodgers. This right. is the Packers picking at 15, only one first-round pick, going Paris Johnson. And then the Washington Commanders at 16 go, uh, go Dalton Kincaid, the tight end from Utah. As I mentioned, Daniel loves the tight end class. Kincaid going 16. Is that the highest we've seen him go in mock drafts? I mean, I've put him at 15 a lot. Oh, that's right. We've done, we've done 15 to the Packers. So that's about the range I think uh, some people are coming around on Kincaid there. So – you know the way every every now and again you get these sort of hindsight is twenty twenty revisionist picks, and it's like, look what happened one pick after you drafted this rando, and it ends up being the dude that would have been like a superstar for you. If the Packers pass on Dalton Kincaid to draft an offensive tackle, I suspect that's what this looks like in three, four years. And that, no disrespect to Paris Johnson, who may end up being a great player in his own right, but helping Jordan Love out, I think you end up, way he gets way more help out of Dalton Kincaid than he gets out of Paris Johnson at right tackle when you consider that you've already got David Bakhtiari you've already got Zach Tom as Bakhtiari insurance so he's literally just coming in to be a right tackle which you've been able to cobble together the last few years and been okay anyway Dalton Kincaid would catapult that offense somewhere differently yeah, I think uh, Zach Tom can handle right tackle for the Packers. I understand the Bakhtiari insurance with all of his injuries the last couple of years. I think Maybe. you already have that in Zach Tom, though. Like, I would – Zach Tom – those, those are your two starting tackles. You still need someone – Josh Nyman. Yeah, but I mean, then that's what going? I'm saying. Get your right – like, you need a right tackle insurance. You don't need a left tackle insurance. I think Zach, Zach Tom is your left tackle if Bakhtiari goes down. Paris Johnson's 
Both, though. He could be left or right tackle insurance. Yeah, but like my point being, I think you already have the left tackle insurance. Like to me, your question mark is a right tackle, not the left side. Well, I mean, I don't hate it as a pick, but I, I, I get your point. I mean, Dalton Kincaid going to Washington would be really interesting. Going with uh, Terry McLaurin and Jahan Dotson and Curtis Samuel there. I already have Logan Thomas there. Just, you know me, more pass catchers. For Sam Howell. For Sam Howell. And Jacoby. And who? Jacoby. And Jacoby, right. So kind of like the Kincaid pick for Washington. Pittsburgh Steelers go Broderick Jones at number 17, the Georgia tackle. I think this has been a pretty common selection here. Mm -hmm. Um, I was on Pittsburgh radio the other day. And uh, so they've already asked – so they've already signed Isaac Samalu. Yes. Right, the guard from the Eagles. The question that was posed to me was rank the Steelers' offensive lineman. Number one. Isaac Samalu. No, rank rank their their starting five in order. Oh, as in like – not rank them against the league, but rank the Steelers. Best player to worst player? Yes. So they're starting five. I think I said Sayamalu. Sayamalu is James Daniels. Left guard for them? Yes. James Daniels, right guard. Mason Cole, center. Mason Cole, Okora center. Four, right tackle. And then Dan Moore, left tackle. That's right? the answer. That's the correct answer. And that's yes. the order. That's the order. Yes. The, it goes guard, guard, center. Yeah, that's probably true. Right yeah. tackle, Chooks. Left tackle, <laughs> Dan Moore. That's what they call him. Okay. Just in case yeah. you know. No, you're right. I was just actually listing the players, but that is actually the order. That's literally the order that yeah. I think they are. Dan Moore has been like maybe, on, maybe. A, a decent fourth-round pick that's played tackle. Fourth yeah. round, right? I would consider flipping Chooks and Mason Cole, but it's pretty much that order. It's the guards yeah. first. I don't think Cole's great necessarily, but solid, fine. Yeah. It's you the know. guards who are by far and away the best thing they have. Then one order of right tackle, center, yeah. and then Dan Moore is the weak link. So they could upgrade left tackle, I think is the point. And yeah. I think Broderick Jones gives them the opportunity to do that. So I like that at 17. Okay. The debates in Pittsburgh are around corners and tackles. They notably do not go Joey Porter Jr. here, who I do think would be a good pick for them. Mm-hmm. Um, the Lions at 18. They go Kalijah Kansi, the undersized defensive tackle. And uh, now they have, in this mock draft, Devin Witherspoon at corner, Kalijah Kansi at defensive tackle. Because as Daniel Jeremiah notes, Lions GM Brad Holmes came from the Rams, where, of course, he was directly exposed to Aaron Donald, the player that will be getting unfair Kalijah Kansi comps, or Kalijah Kansi will be getting unfair Aaron Donald comps. Um, Yeah, I wonder how that, that would be interesting if that does play into his mind. You know, I was around an undersized defensive tackle that was an absolute freak show for years. Therefore, I'm more disposed to grabbing those guys. The good evaluators do a whole lot of work trying to go get, uh, isolate their biases and, you know, make sure that you don't have too many of them. Mm -hmm. That would be an interesting bias to have, right? Like Brad, just because Brad Holmes was, was involved with Aaron Donald either the selection or just watching him play. I mean, I, I had nothing to do with drafting Aaron Donald. I've never worked for the Rams directly, although I might have a Super Bowl ring. Um, however, I am just as equipped to understand Aaron Donald's value. I'm also just as equipped to know that Aaron Donald is as big of an outlier as it gets. Yep. Therefore, I should probably not even mention his name in this entire process. I, so... Jeremiah in this is projecting a little bit, but I am curious how much that stuff pops up. When you talk to former evaluators, a lot of times they reference their hits and misses, right? I was there when we missed on this guy. We made this mistake in the first round. 
And it's like, yeah, that's a data point for everyone, not just for you. If you only focus on your own data points, you're one thirty second of the way there. Every Aaron Donald is a data point for everybody, not just people who are involved with him. That part's interesting. Kalijah Kansi, I think the the more fair comp is going to be Ed Oliver, similar size, uh, productive college profile, or at least we have that data. And Ed Oliver, who went eighth overall, has been okay, pretty good, gotten a little bit better as a pass rusher the last couple of years, but not great. That's going to be your data point, I think, for um, for Kansi. Certainly not Aaron Donald. I like this pick at 18, though. Disruptive defensive tackle who is crazy productive at Pittsburgh. The only question is going to be at 6'1", 280, how does that handle up? What's that? 281. 281. Sorry. Aren't you sure? How does he man. handle a three down roll? That's the question. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, aside from anything else, like forget the Brad Holmes thing and the Aaron Donald, like interior penetrating, pass rushing, three tag type defensive tackle is a need for the Lions. So, like, it makes sense from a where are we going point. Like, he's effectively. He's effectively had the mock draft that the Lions have gone out of their way to avoid having to, to, to do. He's given them a corner and an interior defensive lineman. Like, these are the two spots that Detroit really needed going into free agency. And then after free agency, now it's like would be – would like to upgrade but isn't, you know, going to go out of their way to make it happen. So if they think it's value in Kalijah Kansi, I can definitely see that it would be. It makes sense. So what's happening with this breaking news here? I'm trying to follow – Lamar Jackson has... Breaking news! Can we get the breaking news sound? Go. Lamar Jackson has requested a trade. Could you add a little energy to this, please? No. It's breaking news in the middle of us going through Daniel Jeremiah's mock draft. We have breaking news. Baltimore Ravens quarterback, Uh 2019 MVP, Lamar Jackson has requested a trade. Yeah. The uh, the Ravens aren't stopping him from getting a trade as things currently stand. Like, they literally dared him to go and find one. They did. Yeah. They did. So what So what exactly is this announcement? This is what they call in, uh, in soccer, soccer cliches a come-and-get-me plea. Come-and-get-me plea. Yeah, yeah. Well, because the Ravens already said a go-get-em plea. Right. They sent the plea. They said non-exclusive tag. Go get him. Mm-hmm. Nobody's gotten him yet. No. So now he is is taking up the mantle from his side at, as a true come and get me plea. Maybe you didn't understand the message from Baltimore, but I am available and would now like to play somewhere else. So, you know, call me effectively is what Lamar is saying. Apparently, we already have a quote from Ravens coach John Harbaugh, Harbaugh on his QB requesting a trade. Quote, we love him, end quote. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I struggle to get that worked up over it on the basis that this doesn't change anything. Like, it, we, it, he's been available since they threw the non-exclusive franchise tag on him. This has been oh, out there. The reason why is because John Harbaugh's in the middle of a press conference when Lamar dropped this on Twitter. John Harbaugh's speaking at the uh, league meetings. Which, by the way, I was told... Um, colleague in the business encouraged us to go to the owners meetings next year did they yeah like good spot get some access huh? talk to gms owners coaches the whole thing they're always somewhere nice nice really place nice. he said he said better than the combine yeah from a media access standpoint oh suggested we go what about the food standpoint that's it 
Because you're not. Gonna I be imagine the, you're not going to be where the billionaires are. You know, so you're not in the same. No, but hotel. what you got to do is you got to get that. Uh, like what would Mike Sando do? You know, he would set a <laughs> dinner interview yeah. with an owner. They're picking up the tab. They're picking up the tab. They're not going to eat anything below a hundred dollars steak. You know that, right? Yeah. So. You think you think you can get like a five? You think you can get a dinner interview with an owner and they're picking up the the check for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. But for me, it might be like more of a GM interview type of thing. You're like, oh, just just putting feelers out, you know, if you want to assistant GM. That's I'll one of those like Russian roulette type of deals, you know, where you just you arrange the meal, assuming that they're going to pick up the check, right? And then when the check comes, it's like I'm like overdrafted on my card. Oh, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. yeah. Each one of those things, when the check arrives, you're like rolling with death. You know, am I am I getting this free or am I going into into debt? So we could go into who should trade for Lamar Jackson. Well, here's the thing. The so, same teams that haven't. I still yet. think that the the movement that is going to come in this situation is going to happen. I think post draft. Like I, I think there's a realistic chance that there will be teams that send him an offer sheet, but I don't think it's going to happen until after the draft when everybody figures out where they are. Then you're dealing with next year's pick. You know, you can right. you have a line of sight, and you don't you're not stuck with his contract crippling your free agent plan. Like the Falcons, at yes, eight. the Falcons are the team that still makes all the sense in the world for this to happen. What about New England? Would they make so? Then you have Bijan at well, fourteen. I mean, New England. And Lamar Jackson. It feels a little bit better. <laughs> sure, New England or like what happens if this Rogers thing collapses for the Jets? Like that's that's another thing. The Jets might actually have some leverage here if that's the case. I don't think they have leverage. They don't have leverage, saying, like, but they could at least if they it goes to hell. Back. I'm just saying, if it goes to hell, like what else are they going to do? Realistically, what do the Ravens do at quarterback here? It looks like Lamar's not going to just—he's just not going to be there next year. Mm-hmm. You've got this really good roster. The Ravens make really good moves with roster spots two through fifty-three. <laughs> roster spot one, though, whether it's the Ravens' fault or it's Lamar or whatever, they've screwed up. They have a question I for mean, roster spot one. Well, no, no, QB. Not, they haven't yet. He's out of there, man. Is he? I mean, what? Yes, he needs to get somebody to give him the contract first. Like, if, if this whole thing continues... He might take less money. He might take a, a one-year deal just to get out of there. Maybe, but Baltimore still can match it. Like, this is the thing, right? They still have control over this situation. And, okay, now their quarterback is evidently not happy and openly pissed off about the whole thing. But as things currently stand, Lamar is playing in Baltimore in 2023. You're just losing all the fun here. Losing all the fun. All right. Is there anything else to talk about with Lamar Jackson right now? No. Same we already that. know that every team can make the offers. Yep. Are they going to be more more likely? Does this does this make the offers a little bit lower potentially? I mean, from nothing, but like maybe you, could, you can you can maybe lowball a little bit when you know he's officially offered a trade, meaning he wants out. Well, the question, yeah, the only real question is, does this affect Baltimore's willingness or? does this affect whether they're going to match an offer that comes their way? The theory before, one of the theories floated was nobody's offering because everybody's pretty sure Baltimore's going to match no matter what gets put on the table and they don't want to do the negotiating for the Ravens, effectively. In addition to the other issues that are out there in terms of the contract, having to live in your books, blah, 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 blah. The question now is, well, okay, Lamar wants out. Does that change Baltimore's willingness 
to match any contract you put in front of him. If it does, then maybe there is a team wanting to make that deal. We saw Jimmy Garoppolo give a goodbye speech in San Francisco, and then it was like, uh, yeah. oh, you're back. Right, stuff changes. Yeah, now you're the backup. Oh, now you're the starter. Talk about when you uh, gave a goodbye speech. I don't know. Yeah. That was eight months ago. Circumstance change. Yeah. Lamar feels like maybe that's not going to be the case with him. As in he's gone, he's gone? Feels like when the, when the bridge is uh, starting to catch fire, it's going to you know fan the flame a little bit. I mean, Keep it burnt. Maybe. That's just a guess. I don't know. But again, I think everything I've heard about this situation been a two-way street to get to this point. One of the big questions is how did we get to this point where the Ravens and Lamar Jackson didn't have a contract? I think it's been a two-way street between the team, probably waiting too long, Lamar maybe seeing the market change. This, by the way. His wants and needs changing his, and them just not being able to come to an agreement. His tweet, as of March the 2nd, he requested a trade. So your so answer, what movement does this have? Apparently none, because we've had three and a half weeks of this. And Did the whole happened. league know this, though? Did the whole league know? Probably. That he wanted out on March 2nd. I mean, his, if they didn't, he's his own agent. Like, make that's on you. Oh, I wanted a trade. I just didn't tell the other 31 teams that need to trade for me. They've known this, apparently, since the entire start of this. So it's not really breaking news. I mean, it's breaking news that that was a thing, but apparently it's been a thing for almost a month. There's some owner out there like, oh, this is new. Here's some news. Lamar Jackson. All right. Where are we on this mock draft? Uh, pick number 19. Bucks take Will Levis. There you <laughs> go. There's the slide. So two big potential slides based off what is happening in other mock drafts. Daniel Jeremiah has Will Levis going 19 to the Bucks. And Quentin Johnston still has not been come off the board. He doesn't go till later. The so he, first of all, he says if Levis starts to slide, he thinks a team like Tampa Bay will aggressively trade up to go get him, as opposed to sitting there and letting him fall into their laps. Um, also, the the quarterback room of Will Levis, Baker Mayfield, and Kyle Trask is just a fascinating collection of human beings. It's a good one. It's a good. It's a good group there. It's good potential group. Um, I think that's interesting. Like, I feel, I feel better drafting Will Levis if I'm a team like the Bucks, middle of the first, nineteen. Sure, feel a little better about that. Yeah, I I always wonder about these picks where it's like, you know, when there's no data essentially when you look at uh, value, surplus value of picks. There there is data to say that if you if you reach for a guy because you think you're different, you your evaluation is better effectively than the consensus. You're probably wrong. There's no evidence to say that there are, there's a way of finding more value with those picks. You're almost always worse reaching. Uh, there's not, however, data to say that if you're the team that like halts a slide, you know, you get a bargain effectively because you pick up a guy that's like 20 spots lower than the consensus, or you get a guy 20 spots lower than the consensus uh, ranking had him. There's no evidence essentially to say that that is value. What it, what it is essentially saying is that the NFL has a better system than the consensus board, which is fair, reasonable, right? There's like, they have a whole bunch of information that the consensus doesn't have. They talk to these guys, they put them up on the whiteboard, they background check, they do all kinds of crap that none of us get a chance to do, right? So if Levis, who, I don't know where he fit, where, you know where he is in the consensus board? I can He's gotta that. be top 10, right? Uh, theoretically. So 
you know, if a team like Tampa Bay grabs him at 19, is that actually good or are we just seeing the manifestation of the NFL not thinking this guy is good? The consensus board I'm looking at, uh, NFLMockDraftDatabase.com, they do a great job of accumulating these things. I'm assuming the numbers are correct. Bryce Young at two. Yep. CJ Stroud at three. Mm-hmm. Anthony Richardson at six. Mm-hmm. Will Levis at nine. Okay. So if you take a guy 10 spots lower than his spot, is that getting value or is the NFL just lower on him? How does, how does that work? Because, I, I, again, we're talking data-driven decisions here. And you're saying, rest in peace, Dwayne Haskins. He went 15th overall, right? There's not a good track record for the mid, middle of the first round. Which we liked as a process pick. They didn't. Yes. They didn't panic. They didn't go well, aggressively yeah, trade him. Cause, they cause, sat there and they got a guy who people thought may go a lot higher than that. And okay, it didn't work. But I think from a process standpoint, that was good. And I like the process because no matter what the history says, the payout is uneven to the investment, right? It, like what else are you going to get? Oh, you might miss out on a starter in another position. I'm willing to give that up just in case I hit on a quarterback. But how does this data-driven approach actually work on draft night? If you're the Bucks. I guarantee they're not in the room being like, hey, Will Levis is our number three quarterback on the board. Say they have him third. We would take him in the top 10. He's dropping. He's dropping. Guys, he's dropping. He's dropping. Oh, no. Wait, he's dropping. He's dropping to 19. Can't do that. Nobody hits at 19. Can't do that. We must have been wrong. I mean, realistically, a team's going to be like, we liked this guy. We would have taken him top 10. He's here at 19. You have to take him. Um, Aaron Rodgers fell to, what, 26? Whatever it was. I mean, where does he fit into those data points? I mean, there's there's examples both ways, I think. But, yeah, there's not a great track record for QBs in the teens who do fall. Um, but they fall for different reasons. They fall because of supply and demand. They fall because of evaluations. They fall for different reasons. I'm fine with if you think Will Levis is a top 10 caliber quarterback and he falls to 19, you just you take him. So yeah, I mean, that process, if I'm the Bucs, that is the thing. Like we, we always talk about this group of quarterbacks as just a, a static block of, well, if I think there are four guys are in the same kind of area, everybody does there. That's just not going to be the case. There are going to be teams that think Anthony Richardson is the best quarterback in this draft. There are going to be teams that think Bryce Young, CJ Stroud is the best. There might be a team that thinks Will Levis is the best. There might be a team more likely that thinks he's number two. Where, you know, my, me and Renner, who don't agree with that many things, you know, across the board from player evaluation, we both would, would go to bat for Levis as the second QB in this draft. So there's going to be NFL teams that have him ranked second. If one of those is, slipping, is sitting there lower down and he does start to slide, like those teams make sense to go and trade for him. And maybe you say, all right, you're the outlier, you're wrong, but – you kind of, I think you have to back a team going to chase a quarterback they think is good. Um, I don't think there's a ton of competition for the Bucks for quarterback there. It depends on if you think the Lions might take someone. Is Washington going to get somebody to just, you know, the fourth quarterback? Well, at that point, the competition becomes the teams below you doing the same thing. But right? who would that be? If, is Seattle going to use their second first rounder to just bring a backup in for Geno Smith no, but to like, develop? It, does Minnesota, like, Minnesota, Minnesota could. Minnesota's sitting there at 23, and if... Baltimore if, at 22 now. Right. Like, if Will Levis starts to slide, a team like them, who probably wouldn't have even imagined they were in the situation of a quarterback at the top of the first round, they go and jump and, you know, get to 18, 17, whatever. 
All right, let's run through the rest of this mock. I think I have a hard out at 1130 <laughs> now, that I, now that I know. But there's less interesting things here. Uh, Seattle Seahawks, Jordan Addison at 20. I know you love this pick. Love it. Addison to go with DK Metcalf and mm-hmm. Tyler Lockett. That's how you maximize the mid, the uh, the middle class QB contract of Geno Smith. And I don't think Addison is a slot receiver only, but he can certainly play the slot. So perfect. Zay Flowers goes 21 to the Los Angeles Chargers. I've said a while, speed, speed, speed needed for the Chargers at receiver. I think Zay Flowers brings at least some elements of explosiveness to the Mike Williams, Keenan Allen, and Josh Palmer group. Yeah, and I think his sort of gadget ability plays in that offense with that receiving group more than it would in some other spots. So, uh, yeah, I I like that. The Ravens at 22 go Joey Porter Jr. Uh, We've seen, it seems like the cornerback, I don't know, I think the consensus board is starting to tighten up there. Christian Gonzalez, Devin Witherspoon, Joey Porter. Those guys are 4, 8, and 11 on the consensus board, respectively. Then there's a drop-off to Deontay Banks at 26. So it seems like the consensus is that Christian Gonzalez, Devin Witherspoon, and Joey Porter are the three best corners in the draft, all top 11 in the consensus board. And then you get the next group is 26, 30, 31, 39. There's another cluster Mm -hmm. based off the consensus. Joey Porter may be falling to 22 here in Daniel Jeremiah's mock. Would be a very Ravens pick. A guy that other people saw as potential top 10, potential top 15. He's there at 22. Fills a need. Fills what they love to do defensively is play man if they have the the corners to do it. And uh, kind of like this pick for the Ravens at 22. Yeah. Uh, a guy who I think has basically gotten better every year of his career in college. Played reasonable amount, quite a lot. Um, but his numbers improved every year. Didn't give up a touchdown last season. Has one interception in his college career but that's because he played a ton of man coverage and those guys don't necessarily get a ton of interceptions because your eyes are on the cor- uh, the receiver more than the quarterback. That was, um, what's his face from Florida State the first year we did this? Super fast corner. I can't think of his name right now. I don't know. Uh, Darby, Ronald Darby. Oh. Darby had, everybody's right. like, he doesn't have any interceptions. He's got no production. I mean, Revis got that for a lot of his career. The guy didn't always I mean, have a lot of interceptions. The fact that Revis actually picked passes off while playing man yes. and the way that he did it also made him very, very special. So, yeah, I like Joey Porter as a fit there. Here's the other big curveball from Daniel Jeremiah. Hendon Hooker, first-round pick, number 23 wow. to the Minnesota Vikings. Everyone's talking about four first-round quarterbacks. Hooker goes 23 to the Vikings in Daniel Jeremiah's mock. He'd be the fifth First-round quarterback, and as we said way earlier on the show, hours ago, Chris Sims has Hendon Hooker as his third quarterback yeah. in his rankings. I mean, that that's wild to me, the Sims thing. Him going four picks below Will Levis is also wild to me. I mean, Hendon Hooker in the first round to me is – I hesitate to use the term crazy, but I can't see a tremendously good justification for that. I understand his numbers are good and his production is fantastic, but we've talked before about how hard that offense is at Tennessee to project to the NFL. And that's before you get to the idea that he's coming off an ACL and he's old. You know, there's a lot of question marks around his game. And I, you have to set all of that aside and essentially just look at pure traits. Like literally, you're projecting an abstract going the guy is six foot three, 217 pounds, whatever. He's got the size, the speed. He's got all the tools, right? The, the tools we talk about with Anthony Richardson, blah, blah, blah. He's got all the tools. He's more accurate 
because we can see him throwing to a wide-the-hell-open guy who is uncovered because the corners have fallen over or whatever. So you can see he's pretty accurate, but it's just a massive projection, which is fine, but... I The justification for it is he's a quarterback. Yeah. And at 23, you're going to get a starting defensive tackle, a guy that can compete at corner. It's throwing that against the alternative. And you've got one more year of Kirk Cousins. I'm not saying – this isn't it has nothing to do with the Hendon Hooker evaluation. It's just like I said, Jalen Hurts is a process pick, you know, second round. Why not? Why not? Um, Hendon Hooker is also 25 coming off an ACL. There's the right. things that are working against him. The 25-year-old thing, I don't think that has anything to do with, oh, well, he can't get any better. He's not going to progress. I think it has more to do with you're evaluating a man – playing in the SEC, a 25-year-old man, 24-year-old man playing in the SEC. You're saying he was really good. True. But take a 24-year-old and drop him in the SEC. What are the expectations there? To me, that's the bigger issue with age is that you're taking his stats, his production, and if you're not adjusting for the fact that he's that age, right? It's Matthew Stafford's age, right? Isn't Matthew Stafford just turning 24? Um you're, that's part of the evaluation as well. Not the fact that, well, he'll be 30 at the end of his first contract. It doesn't matter. I think um, it's also how much better is he likely to get. There's a little on. bit of that, but as, he'll as be, much, he'll you're be. saying he played at level X, you have to add the variable Y. He was 25, 24, 25 years old doing it. He'll also be you know, 26 by the time he is sees he, the field. Was he 25 for last season or 25 for the He's 25 start? right now, basically. Yeah. Like just that's just turn. part of the evaluation. But like Look, he'll – the, the story here to me, Sam, is that you have Greg Doyle talking about the Colts trading down in the first round and drafting Hendon Hooker. You have Daniel Jeremiah putting Hendon Hooker at 23 to the Vikings, and you have a guy like Chris Sims ranking him in his top three yeah. quarterbacks. There's like, enough smoke around Hendon Hooker right now that we might hear his name called night one. He's older now than Jalen Hurts is, and he'll be another year down the line before he sees the field at all because he's ACL, the Vikings have cousins, et cetera. Like, yeah, there's some risk associated there i just to me it's not i don't about, argue with drafting quarterbacks usually but no to me it's not about the age thing and i get I, what you say is fine which is look if you need a quarterback and the, they don't have an acute need but they're going to need a replacement at some point so if you think you draft a quarterback okay take the guy in the first round it's more projecting hendon hooker into the first round based off the evidence we have on him and look if you restrict yourself to his numbers they're obviously amazing, right? The dude's got, what, 58 touchdowns to five interceptions in the last two years in that Tennessee offense, which is a passer rating of like 130. It's insane. Uh, but when you put on the tape and watch that offense function, I mean, the offense is destroying defenses, not so much Hendon Hooker, who is sort of standing there and hitting an open guy who is like the, the – and it's the same conversation you have with Jalen Hyatt, which is how do you – project that because that guy's in stack formations the whole time like the defense has no idea how to deal with it there's a play I forget who it was against but like a corner can't read where he's coming from and he's running downfield and the corner is literally like spinning around going what the hell like I just lost track of what's going on and all hooker has to do is like drop back uh-huh yoink touchdown like it's it's cheating it's the cheat code it's not that the offense like Tennessee people hate it that we call that this offense. For college, it's amazing. Like it, yeah, it's a good college offense. It destroyed, it's good for college. It's yes. destroying everybody that goes up against. My problem with it is 
that makes it very difficult to isolate a player from within it, put him mentally into an NFL offense and say, how does that affect his play? And that, I think, is such a huge question mark for Hooker. I find it very difficult to see him as a first-round pick. Yeah, there's a lot of Hendon Hooker fans out there. And look, we've been we've been burned by those types of evaluations as well. Guys that grade well in that type of system yes. or receivers that have crazy production and do like the Corey Coleman's of the world who do amazing things mm-hmm. even at, as far as getting open as route runners, but they didn't have the full nuance of the route tree. I mean, there's just it does there's some risk. Mm-hmm. It's all about risk. And there's some in there. All right. 24, the Jacksonville Jaguars go Deontay Banks. That's right around where uh, he's the cornerback from Maryland. He's uh, That's right around where he is on the consensus board. Another one of those. He's a one-year wonder, Sam, and a combine wonder. One of the best combines that we've seen here. Yeah, great combine. Uh, with good, not great production at Maryland. So an interesting prospect. There's a lot of buzz about him going in the first round. Probably the right spot for him if he's going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Giants at 25 go Joe Tipman. The center from Wisconsin. This is the first time I've seen Tipman's name. Uh, just a good, solid offensive lineman coming from Wisconsin. First time I've seen him in the first round. Uh, John Michael Schmitz, I think, is the consensus. Let's go to this. Consensus top center on the board. You have, uh, for interior offensive lineman, Osiris Torrance, consensus board number 28. John Michael Schmitz from Minnesota, consensus number 49. Yeah. But the top center and a guy that the more I look at the numbers and the tape, I like him as a first-round center. Tipman is 67 on the current board for the consensus. So that would be, uh, you know. And then there's Whipner as well, right? And then there's Luke Whipler Whip. from Ohio State. Um, Those three guys. The consensus I think are board in. has Tipman from Wisconsin, 67. Whipler, 68 yeah. from Ohio State. We have them. They're both close. It feels like those three guys, albeit the consensus board, appears to be slightly different. But those three guys are relatively close together as second-round prospects. Yes. John Michael Schmitz is the guy that um, my database, the data would say, um, might be the center that you would feel comfortable taking in that uh, he has the Tyler best Linderbaum of, range. Yeah. Ooh. He has the best grades of the group. Yes. Yeah, my, my date is not that crazy. It's just the grades are good. <laughs> he, that projects pretty well. John Michael Schmitz from uh, Minnesota might be might be your guy. There. Yeah, like his career uh, his career grade is above 90. He's again, another guy that's gotten better throughout his NFL career. Um, yeah, Data likes him a lot. Number 26, the Dallas Cowboys go Mozzie Smith, the defensive tackle from Michigan. Now, so he's another guy that most – uh, boards, whatever, have him as more of a second-round prospect. But this is what happens in the 20s. There are always some surprise first-rounders, and then there's guys who go into the second who are like, man, I thought I heard these guys in the first round for months, and now they're in the second. Mozzie Smith from Michigan, he's one of uh, – Fel- he's a Feldman freak, 330-plus pounds, might be 340, see what he weighed in at. Uh, moves extremely well, but he's kind of your uh, – classic nose tackle body. I don't know if he plays like that necessarily from what I've seen, but – uh, an interesting pick for Dallas, who, as we've said for a while, they uh, they have a need at defensive tackle that yeah. they've had. No, certainly, certainly takes that box in terms of uh, a need for them. Um, yeah, like I, I don't, I don't hate that pick. Um, and then this is where Quentin Johnston goes, number twenty-seven to the Buffalo Bills, third wide receiver off the board. Yeah. So when we do mock drafts. We have it in our head, positional value of receivers and corners that tend to have us elevate a bunch of those guys. So we get into the 20s, 
and we start plucking receivers from the draft boards in the 30s, right, in the 40s, and start, like, pushing them into the first, other people don't do not do that. So our mock drafts look a little bit different. We do that more with corners and receivers. So Quentin Johnston going here at 27, I mean, for me, it looks like a, I don't love Quentin Johnston, but that looks like a steal for the Bills. And especially going to the Bills, I make that move every single time. Add him to Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs and the great Deontay Hardy and Khalil Shakir. Absolutely. Love this. If it happened like if it happens like this. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fantastic for them. Like don't love Quentin Johnston as a player, but a lot of that is relative to, you know, in the top ten. Like at twenty seven, I think there's more than enough athleticism, potential. You know, he does a lot of things well that we can forgive some, you know, I this was the argument I made for Jackson Smith and Jigba, right? Don't focus on what he can't do, focus on what he can do. And if you focus on the can-do aspect of Quentin Johnston, then absolutely, the bottom end of the first round, that guy can be uh, an impact playmaker for an offense that already has a lot of weaponry. Walt's upset again. Horrible mock. It's a horrible mock. Walt has been giving his mock draft as we go here. Yeah. He's got the Bills take at Steve Avila, the the guard out of TCU, which I think would be a terrible pick. Walt. But um, Walt, if, you, if you're going to call the mock horrible, you need to be able to take criticism as well. And I think Avila would be a terrible pick. Yeah. Walt is uh, always, Might be right. always upset. So Walt is always upset. I wouldn't focus on that too much. Oh, sorry. Um, anyway, I think that would be fantastic for the Bills if uh, Quentin Johnston fell. Take that shot at receiver. Cincinnati Bengals go Darnell Wright, the offensive tackle out of Tennessee. It's tough evaluating offensive linemen in that system as well Mm -hmm. from a pure pass protection standpoint. Wright looks the part. He is the postseason superstar, senior bowl, weigh-in, combine, arm length. Everything's – he's ticking all the boxes. I've got similar one-year wonder type of concerns with him, production concerns with Darnell Wright, but I get it. Um, What I'm struggling with a lot of times in this draft process, Sam, is when my data doesn't match the guys that I kind of like watching, (laughs) you know, I think we could do a whole episode on the data says no, but my heart says yes, that could be a whole, a whole segment. Um, Darnell Wright might be in that, in that spot for me. My heart saying, yes, makes sense. The data saying, "Eh, eh." Tyree Wilson, my heart saying, I could see it. I could see it. Hmm. My spreadsheet saying no. Yeah, it's always annoying when the data doesn't back up what you wanted to say. That's okay, but that's but that's how this whole thing should be approached. That's how it should be approached in buildings, right? You got scouts, they're they're not really doing the pound of the table and standing, oh, this is my guy, this is my guy. And then you got the the analytics people are like, no, 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 thumbs down. You know, you just you, you have that back and forth. You gotta have that back and forth. See it from all angles. Darnell Wright, though, potentially stepping in as the right tackle opposite Orlando Brown. You can also see how easy it would be for teams to ignore the data and just take the guy that they love because you would be tempted to do that anyway just in abstract terms of watching a player. That's before you have the steak dinner with him and talk to him and turns out he's a really great guy as well. Now you're like, I really love this dude. And the data's like, yeah. I think that's where misses happen, though, right? A lot of it. Yeah, it's got to be. You – if you use all of that as data, like everything needs to be converted into a data point, right? And the dinner converted into a data point. Like historically, have we had good dinners or bad dinners with this thing? I, I, I added a, a joke tag in my draft board that I have here was interview red flag. When Austin Gale would interview players mm. and he would say, 
bad interview. I'm out on this guy. There was like three guys yeah. where that happened, and they all – Austin <laughs> was right on a few of them. These guys weren't as good as maybe their on-field production, whatever it may have been. Um, I don't think he said any of those on air, but he just – he came out of the interview. He was like, I don't, I don't trust this guy, mm. you know? Like that, but you turn it into a data point. You don't just immediately say, I love this guy. I don't trust this guy. Therefore, you know, act on it. Throw it into the mix. You got to roll it in, you know? Uh, Saints at 29. Go Michael Mayer, tight end from Notre Dame. Let's go with uh, Jawan Johnson there. More more targets for Carr, kind of like that. Yeah. Uh, with Kincaid off the board, I think Mayer at the bottom of the first round makes a lot of sense. Philadelphia Eagles at 30. Go Felix and Odike Uzama. So now the Eagles have an Adike Azama. Is that how you say his name? At 30 and Lucas Van Ness. You got a power rusher. You got a long rusher. Back-to-back defensive lineman for the Eagles. A very Eagles move here, yeah. I would say. I feel like whatever the Eagles do, Eagles fans are going to be pissed off. Yeah. Are you guys upset with Dana Jeremiah about this? Double dipping on defensive line, picking defensive line, offensive line. Like, there's just no scenario that they go away and do anything spectacular that Eagles Usually, fans are going to love. It feels safe, though, if you're in the trenches. Howie would do this, right? Howie would go double defensive line or D-line, D O-line. Howie would do that. It's when you give them a corner that they always get upset. Howie would never do that. Howie would never hmm. draft a first-round corner. So don't do that. Um, so double up on defensive line there, and then the Chiefs go Will McDonald, the fourth Iowa State edge defender. Mentioned him three and a half hours ago earlier on the show as a guy that plays a lot of five technique in these crazy college fronts, but he's more of a uh, bendy, explosive edge defender who might be a good back end of the first. I think we also gave the Chiefs Will McDonald in last year, last week's Mock Draft Monday episode. So the edge defenders start to go late. So I mentioned, you know, Daniel Jeremiah loves – the edges in this class that mm -hmm. ends up that's two at the end of the first yeah nolan smith and miles murphy that's four there's what six edge defenders going in the first round here tyree wilson miles murphy will anderson high uh nolan smith lucas van ness lucas van ness seven, seven. lucas van ness and then the two that just go to, to round out so jeremiah is not kidding he has mentioned uh he loves the edges he's got seven going here in the top 31 there's only 31 draft picks in the first and um, only the three receivers that we mentioned, only uh, four corners, I think, end up going. So th a couple of those positions where I think there'll be some some second-round value if things play out like this. Mm -hmm. No, I think for the Chiefs in particular, that makes a lot of sense. You know, we talked about before. They bring in Charles Amenahu. I think that's a big move for them, but they need to make sure they're not relying on George Karloftis taking a big step forward in year two, like give him some help, let him be – if he ends up peaking as a guy that's just going to be a hustle player and getting 45, 50 pressures a year through cleanups and grind and working hard, then fine. But let's make sure we have the extra pass rusher as well. All right. So that's it. Dana Jeremiah's mock draft. Uh, to me, again, the interesting part and the reason why we could talk for two hours about it is you're just talking about what teams might be thinking and what what Jeremiah is putting in here that's a little different, either because his evaluations are different than – some of the consensus, or because he's hearing different things. And I think uh, an insider type like Jeremiah, he's kind of like half insider, half evaluator, right? You get a little bit of both. You get a little bit of his own projections in there, and you get a little bit of, eh, you know, I think this team might love this player, therefore I'm going to try to match them in my mock draft. At the end of the day, the best, if you're evaluating mock drafters, the best mock drafters hit like six picks, right? And uh, are we doing a contest for that? 
Are we yeah, trying to see who can point. who can beat that? Right. We haven't got the uh, the details set yet, but people can email in their mock drafts to nflpodcast.pff.com with the word mock in the title. Uh, that At some point, we'll get you into the uh, the competition that we haven't yet set up. Yeah, we need to set that up so we can have some people uh, accumulate and, you know, those mocks. The people in the chat that are upset with this mock, you're free to go make your own. You PFF. can always go make your own. .com forward slash mock. All right, well, we appreciate everybody for tuning in. You're back here tomorrow with Renner. Mm-hmm. All right. You know what you're talking about yet? Yeah. Perfect. We'll figure that out. Um, we're here all week. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Sam and Renner tomorrow. More NFL draft discussion. Thanks to everybody for tuning in. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>